We, we allow people to sit and live on the street and do drugs and live in tents, and we allow that. So I think that's a large part of the problem is that we just allow that to happen. We have million dollar lofts downtown and then down below we have people sitting on the street doing drugs and next to the police station and i hate even saying this out loud but i feel uh uncompassionate anymore i don't mind if people are mentally ill and i don't mind if people get help but why do i have to watch it happen mm -hmm. i think homelessness should be against the law but for humane reasons not because you're a criminal, but because we need to get these people off the street and to a place where they can get help. Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly Knock Activism Wrap-Up. Today we're going to be talking about a quick update related to the campfire showing the complete and gross negligence on the part of PG&E. Uh, and then we're really just going to be diving straight into the homelessness crisis, uh, confronting Angelinos in, uh, in you know, almost every block of our city, uh, as well as talking about some of the roots of that and some reporting that was uh, picked up by both Bloomberg and uh, LAist and comes uh, also on the heels of a, an awesome white paper that came out of one of our allies, Ace. Uh, so yeah, so how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going all right. So we're gonna be uh, rolling a little bit late into uh, this podcast broadcast, uh, mainly because I had a loss in the family, as I've kind of mentioned a couple of times here on the podcast, I've been living in Phoenix uh, for the last few months, taking care of my mother as she struggled to uh, beat pancreatic cancer. Uh, unfortunately, she lost that fight and passed away on Friday night. So it's thrown a little bit of a wrench into the works for us. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of given me a chance to reconnect with some family and my siblings are in town who I don't get to see like all the time. Uh, so it's, it's you know, an interesting time of kind of grieving and healing uh, and at the same time kind of refocusing and getting ready to figure out what the next steps are. So yeah. it's been a, a, a very long weekend, but a lot of people have been reaching out with support and I very much appreciate that and so does my family. Um, and for those of you out there listening, you know, just remember you never know how much time you have with your loved ones. Uh, take the time to tell them that you love them and you appreciate them today and that we're all fighting to create a better world. So thank you all very much for your support. Absolutely. Yeah. How about yourself, Chris? How's your week going? I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm actually back recording from my parents' place in, uh, in Denver, visiting with the family here for Thanksgiving, uh, taking a little bit of an extended Thanksgiving visit. So because I, you know, don't get to see my, my nieces and nephews as often as I'd like, but uh, yeah, thank you uh, so much for you know taking the time out of the the weekend with your family to to do this. Like this is, uh, it's I think it's really important that we keep doing this work. But at the same time, like it definitely is not uh, more important than being able to spend that time with the family. And and you're totally right. Like we this this whole situation uh, is a, a poignant reminder for everyone. Like look you life is life is fleeting and we need to enjoy every moment we can with our loved ones because uh shit happens and also just fuck cancer uh, yeah it, it sucks so yeah it does um so anyway let's uh go ahead and start diving into uh equally shitty <laughs> topic of discussion 
the campfire. Yeah, the campfire from uh, <laughs> two years ago, which we're still doing the post-mortem on. Um, we keep finding yes. out new... Uh, enraging revelations every couple of months, it seems Absolutely. like. PG&E still has not paid up for the damage that they've done or the lives that they've cost. There's, um, I think in the, the city of Paradise right now, there is something like 500 building permits have been approved, but there are only 12 houses being framed. So there's still a lot of questions Ugh. about what's going to happen to the people who lived in Paradise and what's going to become of that town. Um, and a lot of those folks have moved to Chico and other larger surrounding cities and have put a strain on the resources there because this was an influx of like 90,000 people that other municipalities suddenly had to take care of. So let's talk about uh, the latest revelations about PG&E's absolute malfeasance. Absolutely. So uh, NBC Bay Area's investigative journalism team broke a story back on uh, November 19th, so just last week, revealing the truly just shocking and disgusting levels of neglect in PG&E's line maintenance program. Uh, the focus of the report was actually a series of these worn sea hooks and the hanging plates that they're attached to, uh, one of which had failed and then uh, dropped one of the structural support lines, which holds up these 115,000 volt transmission lines. Uh, and when that support line failed, that transmission line swung into the tower, uh, releasing a shower of sparks, which started the fire uh, that ended up destroying the town of Paradise and killed 85 people. So it this is like point small point of failure of this little hook. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a rather beefy hook comparative to like a human hand or something. It's a it's a good sized hook, but yeah. it's that little thing is all that stands between us and complete destruction of like massive areas of wildland here in California. So uh, these journalists brought. Uh, these photos to a number of experts for review and to, to, you know, to take an ass to assess the damage. And this is, we're, we're talking about other hooks elsewhere on the line that were not just this, the one that actually failed. These are other hooks that could have failed and by the looks of the photos very much would have failed uh, given a little bit more time. And what it really points to is the fact that PG&E just missed like the, the way that they're doing their maintenance and their inspection of these hooks and of, of, of this equipment that is so critical to keep the power running safely in California is just incompetent. Well, and uh, I mean, so when you got to pay all that money in bonuses and lobbyist <laughs> fees, like you, you don't have money for maintenance, Chris, like priorities. Yeah. Well, OK, fair. I, I understand it didn't fall on their scale of priorities, but at the same time, God damn it, <laughs> like do your job. Ah, uh, God, we really just need to take over the whole damn thing. Um, anyway, so uh, what these, so one, one of these um, folks that they took, the, the, the experts that they took this to to do the analysis is uh, Dan Mulkey. He is a four-decade veteran electrical engineer with Pacific Gas and Electric who now works as a consultant, and he, he told NPC Bay Area that, quote, this is bad as you can get. This is terrible. I can't imagine how it got that bad and no one saw it. It's flabbergasting. Uh, he also told NBC uh, Bay Area that, quote, it, it's amazing it was still up in the air with that much damage. The level of damage, it really makes me wonder about the whole inspection. What the heck is going on? You are not finding things that should be obvious and things that are absolutely critical. How much more is there out there? End quote. 
another expert that they spoke to is Bob Bea, who is an engineering professor emeritus at UC Berkeley who studies man-made disasters, which is extremely appropriate for this. He also reviewed the photos and told NBC Bay Area that, quote, when I saw that hook, I said, oh my goodness, I've got the welfare of an entire community hanging by that hook, end quote. And what they were looking at are these these, it's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a hook that looks exactly like what you would expect to see on like uh, the bottom of your imagined ideal version of a crane, right? It's the thing that hooks through the loop and it lifts up the stuff. In this case, it holds a support line that keeps these incredibly high voltage transmission wires from swaying around in the wind and slamming into things like tree branches that are too close or the structure that holds up the power lines as a whole. Like, these are incredible, but also incredibly important, but also relatively small components that all play their part. And in the case of the hooks, they're supposed to have what is like, you know, three quarters of an inch or so of steel at the top of the hook that is mm -hmm. held in place over a plate. And, 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 you know, it goes into a slot in a plate. And what happens is that when the wind blows, these pieces rub against each other. And because uh, it's metal and it's got some corrosion on it that you know happens with any level of oxidation because that's just the way metal works. The surfaces are not perfectly smooth and they start to fret against each other and effectively turn into uh, sandpaper for one another. And they just slowly over time wear each other out and start to disappear. And this is a, a support line that had been in place for about a hundred years. So it's been up there getting blown around for a long, long time. And the amount of material left on some of these hooks was like as little as about a sixteenth of an inch of steel, which is really not very much. So in a in a high wind situation, that will snap, and it did yeah. snap, and that's how we got this fire. So the point with all this is that the uh, these hooks they were found in multiple places, miles apart along the line, where the maintenance just clearly is you know just not being done properly because if they, they had done all these spot checks after the fact and found that the lines you know were still safe in these other areas but then now they're going back and doing a more thorough inspection as this post-mortem and it's uncovering all of these areas where that inspection just was done I, I'm assuming that it was just done uh, poorly by somebody who didn't know what they were actually doing uh, because if this was done by somebody who is supposed to know what they're doing and they were looking through a complete checklist from PG&E, uh, there are some massive failings because there's no possible way that this should have been allowed to continue to exist on that line without you know, massive red flags being called up for immediate replacement. So it's a mess. And uh, as we've been saying for months, it's time that we municipalize PG&E and turn it into a... Uh, a consumer-owned uh, power company. It's it's we. This utility has the the shareholders that run this utility and the board that make all these decisions are grossly negligent, and they are responsible for uh, because of this negligence. They sh are responsible for the billions of dollars in damages and the lives that they have taken because they uh, do not know how to do their job. Um, this, I, I mean, I don't know how else to put that. 
Yeah, the the state assembly actually has a two year bill that would talk about turning PG&E into some sort of a cooperative structure or a municipalized structure. Um, part of the uh, settlement for the sort of bailout of PG&E, this like fire insurance fund that Gavinor Newsom sold. Um, he it, it includes a, a subpoint that stops cities from being able to buy out the infrastructure of PG&E or other investor-owned utilities. So we kind of see like the state government working at odds with itself as to what we're going to do here. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, 22 mayors signed a letter saying, hey, we should turn PG&E into a municipally owned cooperative so that we can make decisions about our grid, so that we can safeguard our citizens, and so that we can stop giving all of this money to investors who clearly don't care about the safety of our communities. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out because, you know, Miguel Santiago, who represents 8053, which is like downtown LA, sits on the uh, utilities um, uh, committee and has taken thousands and thousands of dollars from PG&E, as has pretty much every politician in the state of California. Governor, <clears throat> excuse me, Governor Newsom himself, over his last two election cycles for lieutenant governor and then for governor, has taken about $72,000 worth of money from PG&E. Like, they've been really good about throwing around their money, and it's working for them. Like, they understand that they're going to make a bunch of money off of every year that they delay getting municipalized off of every year that they're not held accountable for the damage that they do. And it's weird, again, that we're having to debate how much the taxpayers should be on the line for these kinds of, uh, you know, failures by an investor-owned utility. Like, PG&E had plenty of money to do maintenance, and instead they spent millions yeah. of dollars on bonuses. They spent millions of dollars Absolutely. on lobbying. And we're not getting that money back. Like, as ratepayers, the people in Northern California are still seeing their rates go up year after year. They're also finding themselves being charged for when the power was shut off. Like, it's so uh, ridiculously maddening how sleazy PG&E's management is and how they have no incentive to change. So, you know, fortunately, come March, like, we have a chance to flush out a lot of the state assembly. Like, we don't get to vote on, on Gavin again until 2022. But this year, like, we could make some big fixes here. Like, Miguel Santiago, He's up for re-election, you know? If you yep. do not think he should be sitting in that chair making excuses and giving financial cover to PG&E, then, you know, show up and vote for his opponents. Like, there's a good way to fix this come March and then come November. So we're really going to encourage people, again, on my, you know, whole, like, kick the bums out campaign, because I really think yes. that's one way to get radical change electorally is to just flush out the entire system. <laughs> and so one of the other things that's really just absolutely disgusting with this whole situation with PG&E, those power cuts that happened um, this the, in the last couple of uh, months, you know, these rolling blackouts that we saw up in the Bay Area were disproportionately impacting folks from working class communities. And when people who are in those kind of communities get hit with power cuts, what it means is that things turn off. And if you are a family who is struggling paycheck to paycheck to make ends meet and you're buying your food in bulk and you're keeping it in the fridge because that's the only way you can afford to properly feed your family because of the way that our system is set up and the way that our you know we've commoditized the shit out of every single facet of living in this country you are now confronted with the fact that all of that food that you had in the fridge or in the freezer that you're buying when it's on sale because that's the only time that you can stretch those pennies that you have to be able to actually spend on food, that food all went bad. 
people were throwing out hundreds of dollars of worth of food and groceries that they had been stockpiling. Restaurants were losing thousands of dollars of inventory because PG&E had to cut their power, because PG&E didn't do their maintenance, because PG&E felt that they needed to be rewarding the executives and the shareholders more than doing their fucking job. And now as a result of that, families who were already being stretched you know, and, and barely making it paycheck to paycheck are now put in an even more dire situation where they've lost hundreds of dollars worth of groceries and they have no mechanism to come up with getting the replacements for that. They have to go to food banks and uh, you know anywhere else that they're able to get donations of food to try to replace it. But you know the whole point is that those kinds of things that can spoil and can go bad because the power gets cut and your micro and your uh, fridge and your freezer have to be turned off because you don't have power to your your living area. Those are things that you can't really get at food banks very easily. Yep. Those are the things that you can't get from emergency pantry situations where you know local churches and, and other uh, nonprofits have set up to, to try to help people out of these situations. Those kinds of goods are not the ones that are easily replaced and are so you know fundamental. It, it's just this whole situation is just so incredibly frustrating. And the more that comes out, the more uh, disgusting. Uh, the the leadership at PG&E is proving to be and the more uh, negligent our elected officials have been in trying to regulate this behemoth within California and mm-hmm. uh, you know honestly we gotta uh, we gotta shut it down we gotta we gotta take it, it out of the hands of these incompetent assholes and change it because without that change nothing is going to happen and we're going to be put in the same situation again next year and you know uh, thankfully the rain is starting to come and help you know quell the fire damage for the time being but of course then you get the issues with the landslides yep. um, and then on top of that like it puts another situation that is absolutely a di- like a dire situation in Los Angeles and across the state uh, into even more harsh relief uh, when we get these rains. Yeah, and it's, so, it's you know, this these power cuts also affect people disproportionately who have disabilities, who have chronic illnesses, who are oh, reliant yeah. on technology to stay alive. Like, And those are often the people who have the least amount of money because being sick in America is not only financially burdensome, but becoming a death sentence for a lot of people. And as you rightly mentioned, you know, the the fire season is being followed up by a very wet, cold, rainy season. And this has uh, deadly effects here in Los Angeles, where on the streets of LA, we see more people last year died of hypothermia than died of hypothermia in San Francisco and New York combined. So this week was kind of marked by a lot of absolute trash coverage from the LA Times, um, from our Blue Ribbon Commission on Homelessness at the state level, where we're talking about some very scary ideas, and we're seeing a lot of just vitriol and hate being poured towards people who are living unhoused. So let's kind of roll through this and also talk about the findings of ACE and SAGE, where they finally kind of came up with a comprehensive survey of the amount of vacant units that we have in Los Angeles and what that says about the number of people that we have living without shelter. So I guess let's go ahead and start with um, kind of going off on the Lopez pieces, which... um, Steve Lopez retire like we don't it's it's fine yes. man you can you can go away you've done plenty like you make plenty of money you've got a great pension like we have better journalists that are younger in the city that could split <laughs> like your salary like four ways and do way better coverage uh, so you know slash rant on that one but yeah let's get into this 
Well, so before we jump into that, just because you know the this, the the fact that you cited cited there about the hypothermia between New York and San Francisco, that might be very difficult for a lot of people to to really you know wrap their heads around because it's like we live in Los Angeles. It's not it doesn't ever it doesn't get cold enough for it to snow in Los Angeles. Things don't freeze in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, people expect that cold weather to be much more impactful in a place like New York because that's just, you know, they get snow. It, it's, you've got all these beautiful pictures of Central Park blanketed in snow, and that's something that you would never see of Griffith Park in LA. And, you know, instead in Griffith Park, it's all covered in ash and, you know, charred remains of devastating fire seasons. But um, Pacific Standard Magazine's Kelly Jaka uh, published a piece last February that really laid everything out and, and included that statistic that you mentioned about hypothermia. And But she also breaks down, like, fundamentally what the situation is with hypothermia and why it's such a dire thing for our unhoused neighbors. And this really plays into the stuff that uh, is being done by, by groups that do the kind of homeless outreach that we talk about so often coming out of like SELA and K-Town for All. Like the incredible importance of that work uh, is really highlighted here. So to quote from her, quote, hypothermia occurs when the body loses heat faster than it can produce heat causing the normal body temperature of around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit to fall below, below 95 degrees. This can lead to heart and respiratory system failure and eventually death. It is caused by exposure to cold temperatures and cold water, and commonly occurs when a person stays out in the cold for too long, doesn't have appropriate clothing for the weather, or isn't able to change out of wet clothes and move to a warm, dry location. Even at a temperature of 50 degrees, which is what we normally see in Los Angeles, you know, in the daytime in the winter, and much and it dips below that in the winter for night times, your body can drop to a low temperature in wet and windy weather. This month, LA, this was back in February 2019, LA has seen several days of wet weather with low temperatures from the mid 40s to the low 50s. End quote. So this really does also play right into exactly what is going on in Los Angeles right now. We are seeing the weather in the 50s and maybe into the 60s this week with rain coming in on Thursday and Friday again after we had some rain last week. And at night, it is dipping down into the 40s. And when you've got those kinds of conditions, that is the perfect recipe for our unhoused neighbors to start dying on the streets of hypothermia because you know the way that the water pools up on, on the areas where they've got their tents. Like you see people trying to move to higher ground, but those kinds of locations where it's protected and where they can keep their, their material belongings dry and have you know cl dry clothes to change into are very limited. And even despite their best efforts, like they're probably still going to get wet one way or another. And if they don't have dry clothes to change into, you know, cold, wet socks suck. And to have that be your only option versus, you know, being exposed with nothing is is just absolutely dire. So uh, that kind of reporting that that uh, was coming out of the Pacific Standard Magazine last fall or last spring, rather, compared to the, like what we're seeing with this victim blaming, stigmatizing bullshit coming out of the LA Times and honestly, I think even worse than what Steve Lopez is doing, mm -hmm. uh, NBC LA's Joel Grover oh. uh, and his- uh, Streets yeah, of Shame horrifyingly series. Streets of Shame, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a horrifyingly appropriate name for the series, but not in the way that they really mean it. Like, they are the ones who should be ashamed for this coverage because 
holy shit. Well, and this is also um, part so, of a national trend. Like we're seeing these videos produced in in yeah. uh, parts of Texas, up in Seattle as well, where they're really couched in this idea that the people who should feel bad about the housing crisis are the people who are living on the street. That this isn't some sort of societal just, failure. It's a moral failure. Oh. It's it's a failure of personal character and the inability to bootstrap yourself up to uh, yeah. meet the kind of like middle class American dream. And it, they have, you know, a lot of them are produced by like the Sinclair Network. When it comes to the the yep. NBCLA one, I don't think they're owned by Sinclair, but it definitely goes hand in glove with what we're seeing by these really conservative reactionary media owners and really selling mm -hmm. to the worst parts of our society. They talk to business owners. They talk to people who live in housing. They don't really talk to people who live on the streets. Um, one of my Twitter friends that's uh, at nonblonde. Uh, kind of made a mission to watch through as many of these as they could. Yeah. And after, brave, after, brave yeah, soul. <laughs> after watching 29 of the videos, only seven of them had any interview with somebody who was actually out on the street, like living on the street. As they continued oh. to watch through, like there are hundreds of these videos on the NBCLA Facebook page and just watching through the rest of them, the numbers don't really improve. And often when they're interviewing somebody who's out on the street, they're not talking to that person in a way that's supposed to be a real counter-argument to the thesis of the piece, which is that being unhoused is your own moral failing, but use that more to kind of like buttress that argument. They don't really explore why somebody ends up there or what the circumstances, material or otherwise, that led them to be there. The fact that we don't have a lot of mental health care services or way to deal with trauma in a healthy way. Like, if you want to see a therapist, you are either ending up on a wait list where your your problems are getting worse while you wait for a therapist to finally be able to take you, or you have to have a lot of money to be able to afford entrance into a therapist practice or, like, a rehab program of some sort. Most of the rehab programs that we do have and stable shelters that we do have in L.A. come with, like, a nice little moralizing to them. Like, Reverend Andy Bales, who runs the Union Rescue Mission, you know, requires that before people come in that they be so Sober, which is just not how mm -hmm. fucking sobriety works. Like, if you're no. living on the street, you're in pain. It's a traumatic, terrible, yeah. horrible, no good, very bad thing. You're probably going to want to be drunk or be high just to survive that day to day. So requiring somebody to prove that they're sober in order to go into housing is insane. And then Hayes Davenport on LA Podcast was talking about his work with CeeLo a while ago, and they had a guy show up that they you know encountered a few times, and he was like, look, I've been off the, the heroin for a couple of days. I want to go into a rehab facility. Can you get me into some place now before I relapse? And so they made some calls. They talked to some, to some rehab places, and they were like, oh, he has to come in high. What? What? So, like, this is how broken no. our system oh. is, where, like... In order to get stable housing, you have to already be sober and not be a danger of, like, relapsing. And if you have, like, made it a few days and are, like, in the point where you really need medical rehab so that, like, you're physically and mentally safe, the rehab facilities are going to reject you because of stupid bureaucratic rules. Like, it's a catch-22 for everyone involved and basically guarantees yeah. that once you fall to a certain rung on our Ugh. social level ladder, you aren't going to be able to pick yourself back up. That we have incredibly dumb rules and laws that stop you from doing that. Meanwhile, LAPD is always breathing down your neck with the threat of incarceration. Yeah, and so uh, and on, on top of all this, there's the, you know, the stigmatization of our unhoused neighbors because they choose, you know, clearly some of them are facing truly like horrifying levels of, you know, a lack of mental health care. And there are going to be people out there who are, 
uh, suffering from extreme like bipolar or schizophrenia or paranoid dis like disorders of many types that cause people to behave very, very poorly. And they, there's just no access for them to be able to get the kind of healthcare that they need. But instead of talking about that lack of care, we've got people like Joel uh, from NBCLA uh, tweeting on November 12th, quote, doused with diarrhea, punched in the head, pushed in front of a moving truck. The NBCLA I-team finds that attacks like these committed by mentally ill and drug addicted homeless are skyrocketing in Los Angeles, end quote. And then he links to an article detailing an account of a woman who was absolutely grotesquely assaulted, but doesn't go into anything anything to do with the fact that, hey, look, we have no mental health care facilities. We have no public spending on mental health care in Los Angeles. We are not trying to treat the root cause of this problem. Instead, we are just using police, which apparently this woman wasn't even able to like get a hold of the police to do any kind of investigative work after the fact. So that's why she ended up turning to Joel, because apparently he's the only option that she thinks that she has. And then he's just going to turn it into clickbait bullshit that puts the blame for these kinds of systemic issues squarely onto the shoulders of the people who are most impacted by them. Um, and in that article... Remember a couple of years ago when the guy who started uh, Pinkberry beat a homeless man nearly to death and suddenly NBCLA ran months worth of headlines about how dangerous small business owners are and like how you should watch out for tech bros who start like frozen yogurt places because that was like that was a great period in journalism. Oh no, wait, I'm sorry. He yeah. was able to oh, plea that, it yeah, out that. with the city attorney <laughs> because he's a rich guy with money. Jesus fuck. Yeah. No, it, it, so it, yes. And in that same article that I was just talking about from uh, you know the douse with diarrhea piece, uh, they link to a, an article from June that suggests in the, the context of where it's placed, and then if you watch the video, uh, it just goes straight into it talking about how the rat problem in Los Angeles is the fault of the homeless people. They do point out, which I, I mean, I'm gonna trust the experts that they interviewed on this, that rats will apparently eat human feces, but you know, they say, they basically say like, that's the reason why we're having this issue is that because there are homeless people on the streets and that we haven't provided them with anywhere to defecate, that therefore the homeless people are the reason why the rats are there. But they completely miss the fact that so much of the dumping that is causing these buildups of trash on our streets, which is where these rodents are nesting, which is where the public health crisis surrounding the rodent infestation comes from, is illegal public dumping by small business owners in many cases who are just like, well, you know, I could pay to have all of these uh, rotting pieces of produce taken away, or I could pay to have all of these stem cuttings from my flowers taken away and put in a proper place and handled by LA sanitation or by whatever waste disposal system it is that's supposed to be handling it. Or I could take the cheap way out, which is drive over to where this homeless encampment is and just dump my shit on the side of the road, blocking the sidewalks, blocking the roads, blocking the alleyways, and creating massive piles of lovely trash for our little rodent friends to run around in and then the homeless people are the ones who end up taking the blame. The homeless people aren't the people who are out there putting a fucking sofa on the side of the road. The homeless people are not the ones out there putting mattresses on the side of the road. The homeless people are not the ones taking crates of rotting tomatoes and dumping them on the sidewalk. That is not who is causing this problem. And it is gross for them to blame it. Because in, in just, just on a basic... <sighs> Just on a basic logical level, like in order to throw stuff out, you have yeah. to have stuff. 
And like most homeless people only have as much stuff as they need on a daily basis. Like A, a lot of it's going to get stolen by the cops or by sanitation. But B, like you don't have a lot of places to put stuff. Like you can't really accumulate that much food waste in a tent. Like, and all of the people that I've talked to and worked with at encampments, they want a better ability to throw stuff out. Like they've asked the city to bring us a dumpster, bring us toilet facilities, bring us a way to wash our hands and take a shower, you know, don't make me travel all the way to City Hall right in front of, like, the police building to take a shower twice a week. Like, bring a shower to me here. And it's a lot cheaper and easier to do that than to, you know, wait for things to become a health crisis to move forward on that. The, The city has sort of turned a blind eye for a long, long while to illegal dumping. If you've lived in, you know, any of the areas of town, like Koreatown especially, or Westlake, or uh, South LA, those, yeah, those alleys, people just drive down there in the middle of the night, just dump all of their shit, and then, like, drive off, because they know the city's not coming after them. They know no one's paying attention to it. If you call 311, like, when I called 311 when I lived in, in Palms, they were out there the next day and, like, took care of stuff. If I called 311 when I was uh, out in, um, you know, South L.A. when I was going to USC, mm-hmm. it would take them a week, maybe. Like, there was one time where, like, we tried to get rid of a couch, and we had to call them three times to come pick up a couch. I, I don't know... You know, yeah. and that was even doing it the legal way. The that was like <laughs> calling them and saying, "What's our pickup date?" Taking it the taking it out the day we had the pickup date set, and then just having yeah. it sit there for a week. It, cool, thank you. Why am yeah, I paying it, you it, sanitation fees? Yeah. No, it's just absurd. And then, so on top of all of this stuff, like from the streets of shame, which uh, we're going to include a link to that Twitter thread uh, from that brave, brave soul who watched so many of those disgusting videos. Which, like, I tried. I tried to watch a few of them and I got so just frustrated with the types of coverage and who it was that they were interviewing that it's just like, look, they, yes, I understand that these people are frustrated and angry and they want to vent and like as a reporter, you feel that it's your job to give a voice to these people, but maybe try balancing it out a little bit uh, with, you know, actually talking to the people that are truly suffering from this rather than being like, oh no, like, I have to look at you know the, the this this trash on the side of the road, and I have to look at these tents that are set up you know a couple of blocks away from where I live, or they're on my commute, and oh my god, it's so it's so devastating. Like yeah, they're mad, and they have a right to be mad, but at the same time, the people that are living in those tents have a much you know they are they can they should be even matter and you should be talking to them and finding out what the failings of the system are that force them into that situation and not trying to just blame it on like oh well they're you know they're a drug addict and therefore we we shouldn't bother paying any attention to them like my friend uh, Joanna uh, Joanna Swan from Olympics uh, went on to Twitter following some of this absolutely wretched reporting from Steve Lopez at the LA Times. And she said that, that, quote, Steve Lopez approached an unhoused comrade and me on Streetwatch LA outreach, interviewed us both without credit, and demanded my friend, quote unquote, prove his legitimacy by divulging his disabilities that made him unemployed. Lopez knows about our work, yet chooses to platform hate instead, end quote. And like, this is exactly exemplary. Like we, we, we were discussing before we started recording this, like that video from the LA Times website uh, which we're including uh, some audio snippets of in the, the cold open of this podcast, that video where Steve Lopez is sitting there with all these you know focus groups of people, it's just like, look, like they are all instantly legitimate, but if you try, because of like the, their, their circumstances, because they are employed and, and have 
access to shelter and therefore you know they are the ones who would get to be platformed by folks like Steve Lopez versus like they went around and they they you know they took that picture of the uh, the group of unhoused folks who were you know in living in Hollywood and uh, were I believe they were mostly LGBT folks that were uh, young and had come to Los Angeles were you know seeking a an opportunity for things to be better than back in their hometowns uh, in you know the Midwest where they're not accepted and where they're stigmatized and where their lives are put in danger because of who they are and rather than focusing on any of that they're just like these people are coming from the Midwest to live in Los Angeles where they feel like they can just coast by more easily and then they turn to drugs and now they become our homeless problem to deal with it's like fuck you Steve that's not what the situation is. Like, let's talk about the system that made it so that these people had to come to Los Angeles because this is one of the only places where it's safe for them to live. And then that when our systems in our city, which should be so welcoming and so open to these people, just like, you know, the, the, the poem engraved at the base of the Statue of Liberty, like, we should be providing the opportunities for these people to be safe and be successful. And instead, they find that the rents are exorbitantly high and that the access to the services are just completely gatekept by the most horrific practices around. Well, and it's almost like the entire state of California, you know, built this image as a place to yeah. come and start anew, as a place mm -hmm. to like live your dreams and to find opportunity and is the fifth largest yeah. economy in the world, you know. It 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 doesn't really read that anybody wants to come here to be homeless because yeah. they're not you know the kids that are ending up in hollywood are ending up there because a they're being rejected at home they don't have a safe place to live at home and some of them are facing dire threats to their yeah. safety and their lives and hollywood is sold to the rest of the world as a place where you can make come big, and discover kid. yourself you can come and make a career show that show that you are a valid human being and then it gets turned into this means tested oh do you really have enough hardship to justify yeah, us caring about on. you which you know like that's not how humanity works or basic empathy, especially when it's coming from a, a guy who makes an outsized salary at the LA Times, who owns his own home, who has gotten massive residuals off of a book and a movie starring Jamie Foxx that was you know, based off of his work that had to do with him basically means testing a homeless man and saying, oh, this guy has talent. Like, he went to really good schools and he can play an instrument. He yeah. deserves my sympathy. And that's not really an empathetic no. tale or one that makes Steve Lopez look good. It just shows the shallowness of how he thinks about other human beings. That, like, you have to pass some sort of test in order for Steve Lopez to be like, that man does not deserve to be hit yeah. by a car. Well, thanks, Steve. That, you know... <laughs> maybe that's a terrible way to go about like spreading this message and also shows where your class loyalties and your class interests lie. You know, when you live in a massive house up in the Hollywood Hills, how many units could we stick on the property you own? Like we could probably put a good 10 or 15 unit apartment building there. Why shouldn't we means test your ability to take up that much land? Why should you as one person in a city with 60,000 people unhoused in the county on any given night be able to take up that much space? And if your answer is, well, I can afford it, I don't really know why your money inoculates you against that. It just sort of makes yeah, you Yeah, and so one of the other things that, that comes out of all this is that, you know, with the reporting that uh, Joel from NBC and uh, Steve uh, Lopez from LA Times have been doing is who it is that they choose to platform. And 
one of the most uh, immediately like directly connects to the work that you and I and Ground Game LA and all of our allies with Street Watch LA with uh, K Town for All and Sela and everybody else are doing. One of the specific examples that happened uh, is that who who Steve Lopez gave voice to. And it's a cop named Jeannie, or, or Gainey Jeannie, something like that. Uh, Tommy has direct experience, Tommy, Tommy Kelly from Ground Game LA, uh, who is active with uh, K-Town For All as well, and Street Watch LA. Uh, he went out there and, and points out, because this is you know uh, an officer who does patrols in an area where he does outreach, which is you know blocks away from where he lives, and he's talking about this cop and he says, quote, she's awful. She's some kind of a, uh, like, she's some kind of lead. Her personality is like an obnoxious hall monitor. She's responsible for continually harassing unhoused people around the Selma shelter and has absolutely no empathy whatsoever. Um, and then he continues to go on and talk about how he said, I once saw her threaten to ticket an unhoused person because they were sitting on the curb. Therefore, they were, quote unquote, in the street. Like, this is the kind of thing, like, she's apparently orchestrating 15 different cops that patrol the surrounding area to ticket them and harass unhoused folks. And from what he has seen, she does it with this anger and vindictiveness that is just utterly inappropriate for anyone who is doing any kind of an, like, a, a point person for doing any kind of outreach to homelessness or any kind of interaction with our unhoused neighbors because that's the kind of shit that creates the most toxic relationship between our law enforcement personnel and our unhoused neighbors and why it has been so difficult to try to deal with this situation and why we've got we've seen this incredible uh, upsurge in people who are being quote unquote um, uh, shelter resistant or treatment resistant. The reason why they're resistant is because the people that are offering these things to them are usually doing it with the kind of spitefulness and vindictiveness that Tommy is talking about and is totally inappropriate. And also, in a lot of these circumstances, the officers who are trying to you know, help people out by putting them under shelter, supposedly, is they're, they're doing this while fully decked out in body armor with a nine millimeter on one hip uh, or whatever their service weapon is and a taser on the other hip and they're standing there, you know, just towering over a person who is like reaching out from a tent, laying on the ground and they're somehow expecting that this is the kind of way of delivering an empathetic, compassionate response of, hey, we're just trying, we're just trying to help here. No, that's not how it comes across at all. And like we're gonna link to these Twitter feeds, and it's just no oh, man. Well, and it also points to the fact that a lot of the shelter options that people are offered are not things that they feel comfortable taking. You know, yes. a lot of the a lot of the rescue missions uh, have a very moralizing aspect to them, as we talked about earlier, but also have really stringent rules. So like you can't yeah. be in the shelter during the day; you have to leave at six a.m. and then they let you back in at six p.m. and you basically spend all of your day waiting in line in the sun on the streets of Skid Row to get back into your shelter. When L.A. did its kind of like housing first experiment, they only offered that to veterans, and veterans are a significant number of our unhoused population, but they're not the majority of it. They're not. The Absolutely. vast majority of it. A lot of the shelters have no place for women and children. Or if you're like the woman that uh, Adam Smith from White People for Black Lives was was uh, working with, she got kicked out of the Union Rescue Mission with her kids because she didn't get back there in time because she had a life event happen and wasn't able to get back to the mission by 6 p.m. And so when she showed up at 8, they're like, oh, we gave your space away. 
Cool. Thanks, Andy. That's so absolutely helpful to this woman who has kids who need help and protection. Yeah, and then you've got people like Andy Bales, who, again, is the head of the Union Rescue Mission, which is... And loves Trump! He loves Trump. Oh, yeah. He goes out there, and he's, like, praising Trump and saying, hey, come here and start doing, like, a FEMA disaster relief-style approach to our, our, our homelessness crisis. And he basically points to all of our unhoused residents in Los Angeles and says that, you know, it is a breeding ground of crime and that the, you know, it's... There's this mental health situation there that is uh, endemic to it and can't be treated in any other way other than, you know, through the forced relocation of people into services that they do not necessarily want. Because, like, one of the things that gets talked about a lot in California specifically is that, you know, Reagan closed down the institutions, uh, the mental health institutions, and when he did that, the asylums, when he closed those down, suddenly we now all of a sudden have this massive issue of homelessness. And we have this massive issue of crazy people on the streets, supposedly. But yeah, we should point out that he didn't—he didn't just like executive order, hey, no. let's close the asylums. It, it was, was part of a larger push to say you can't involuntarily yes. hold someone. You—you you can't just say this person is mentally incompetent, and now I'm going to hold them against their will. That there yeah. have to be limits on that. So yeah. that's why we have the 5150, which is an involuntary mental health hold, which can only last for 72 hours, Correct. and then you have to be reevaluated, and doctors have to come to a very like high level and reviewed conclusion that this person is unable to take care of themselves Correct. or is a danger to themselves or others. And you're, you're really, uh, it's much harder for the state to make that call, which is yeah. a good thing in a lot of ways because that was mental health care for a long time in this country was, oh, this woman is hysterical. Yeah, her uterus has, her has broken free and is wandering throughout her body. <laughs> yeah. So put her in this cold tile shower and blast her with a fire hose yeah. until her uterus settles down. And yeah. like that was that was mental health care here for a long while. The, the asylums were... Disgusting, dirty, dangerous, dehumanizing. Absolutely. We've come a long way in our, our understanding of what of how you treat mental health care. But what's scary about this, and I'm glad you were, you know, we this is kind of dovetailed into our next mm-hmm. section, is that Mark Ridley Thomas a few months ago floated the idea of a right to shelter in LA, which yep. New York has a right to shelter. Like if you show up and say, I would like a place to live, I am unhoused, they have to give you a place to live. Not just a shelter, they also rent out thousands of hotel rooms across the city mm-hmm. to keep people in them. Now, the, the conditions of those rooms, like, it's pretty sad to listen to. Yeah. Uh, Planet Money did a whole breakdown on what that's actually looks, listen uh, actually looked like. Uh, they had an expert on there saying, hey, if we just bought all of these people apartments, we'd be saving a ton of money instead yeah. of putting them in, in hotels where the hotels don't want them to begin with. Yeah. But Mark Ridley Thomas, when he broached this idea of a right to shelter for L.A. County, immediately got pushback from activists who were like, what do you mean by right to shelter? Yeah. You know, does that mean you're going to give this person an apartment? Or does that mean that this person now has an obligation to accept placement in a subpar shelter? And if they don't, they could face incarceration and possible conservatorship, something that's being pushed in San Francisco, something that hasn't been pushed too much in L.A., but we're going to see a push for it, Yeah. especially after the comments by California's Blue Ribbon Commission, which Mark Ridley Thomas is one of the co-leads, yep. along with the uh, mayor of, of uh, Sacramento. Uh, Sacramento, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Steinberg. So, so let's Darryl, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so Daryl Steinberg uh, tweeted uh, just a, a few days ago, and you know, again, he's on this Blue Ribbon Commission, uh, and he and Mark Ridley Thomas are working together on this project. He says, quote, our system of addressing homelessness has failed. No shit. 
We cannot continue a bottoms-up approach and expect the system will change on its own. It will only change if we change statewide public policy. You know what? So far, I'm agreeing with everything that he's talking about here. Now, record scratch. That's why we need a legally enforceable state imperative to bring people indoors, end quote. So this is exactly what we're talking about. This is creating a legally enforceable mechanism to take people off the streets against their will and put them into shelter that doesn't exist and somehow this is going to solve the problem. We do not have the facilities built because we have just pretended that this is a problem that we don't need to address because we have had a system of systemic, frankly, apartheid, of compartmentalization, of saying, hey, you know, this homelessness problem, at least in LA, let's just lock it all up in Skid Row because that's like a 50 block area where we can just pretend it doesn't exist because most of the people that live here and definitely most of the people that are like the voting population, the taxpayer population, they live elsewhere. They live far away in gated communities or in suburban style single family home neighborhoods uh, across the city that have miles of separation between them and Skid Row. Well, unless of course you're listening to the um, uh, the real estate portion of the of the New York Times, which for some reason believes that Echo Park is, you know, blocks away from the quote-unquote gritty Skid Row. So that hey, aside... Google Maps <laughs> is very hard to find. You know, it's really hard to figure out LA's geography from all the satellite photos and the mapping programs. You know, like, I don't blame the New York Times with their, you know billion dollar endowment for not being able to figure out like well, hey where are these LA neighborhoods and like if people hard, are homeless yeah. in one area they must be like close to each other yeah, right like these no. areas must yeah it's, and uh <laughs> fuck the New York Times on their coverage of this stuff but that aside um it's we're, what we're talking about here is the fact that the people who are making these decisions at the top levels of state government in California and who are making these recommendations to the governor have basically decided that what we need is to, you know, we've failed in this experiment of like, let's, let's end the broken system we had before and then do nothing and then say, oh my God, doing nothing didn't work. Let's go back to the system that we had before because at least that was doing something. Like, no. We need to be treating people with the fucking dignity that they deserve. We need to be building massive numbers of public social housing to keep people from becoming homeless in the first place. And then we need supportive housing to get people back off the street. We need all of these different styles of le different levels of wraparound services and everything else that's necessary because, you know, the longer that you live on the street, the more difficult it is for you to get back into housing and adjust successfully. We need true yeah, it's rehabilitation programs for people who are addicted to these substances that they've been using to self-medicate because they've got like demons in their head that they need to be dealing with and we don't have the public mental health infrastructure in the state or in the city to deal with them. We need to be able to offer these people the services that they need to get better. We need to offer them the services that they need to stay in housing. We need to offer them the fucking housing that they need so they don't have to live on the street dealing with the fact that the curbs are overflowing because the small businesses that are not doing their dumping legally have dumped all this extra shit into the street and it's plugged up the storm drains and now it's flooding into these areas where people are having to live on the streets and now all of their belongings are flooded and destroyed and then sanitation is going to come by and say well that's contaminated chuck it in the back of the fucking garbage truck Ugh. 
and the other the other question here uh, that we have to be asking because this is I can Jesus already I'm going to predict Christ. a dodge coming up right yeah and I predict that the the the, the state level blue ribbon commission is going to be like whoa 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 what Daryl Steinberg meant is that we have to have a legally enforceable mandate for cities to figure out how ah. to bring people indoors. And so then it's not going to be the Blue Ribbon Commission's fault that LAPD is, like, shuttling people into veritable concentration camps. Mm -hmm. It's, oh, well, L.A. just had to figure out a way to deal with it, or else we would, you know, withhold state funding. We would do some other, like, state overtaking of, like, loss or something like that. But I can see the state level kicking this can down the road because nobody wants to be responsible for this. Like, even Eric Garcetti, his, you know, he doesn't get up there in front of the city council or his supporters and say, hey, I'm really happy that we're sticking all of these people in jail because they're too poor to afford a place to live. He always couches it in this tragic, but we have no other options, yeah. you know? The only tool I have is LAPD and their guns, mm -hmm. and I'm just the mayor of Los Angeles. I couldn't propose a new department <laughs> that would, like, house people. I couldn't make there be new legislation in this city. There's, my hands are tied. I've got, I, I'm spending 54% of my general fund on the cops, and that's all yeah, I got. That's the, literally the only thing that I can do. I've done nothing, and, and so, I'm yeah, all this out is of gonna become Exactly. It's going to become more can-kicking down the road, and this is especially acute in light of the work that was just done by SAGE, yes. uh, which is uh, Strategic Action for a Just Economy, and then ACE, which is the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. Uh, big shout-out to Jacob Wucher, who's one of the co-authors yeah. on this study. But they basically looked at the fact, and here's the thing, before I, I move on, it's really hard to know what vacancy is because developers don't have to tell you how many vacant units they have in a building. It's proprietary information. And you can kind of glean this information from surveys and for, by going through Zillow, but it's a lot of work and a lot of effort to really hash these numbers out. Sage and Ace sat down and did that work and came up with some startling findings as to how many vacant units we have, not just in LA, but vacant units that are vacant only because of speculation. So we're going to get into this next section where we talk about whether or not we could actually house every person in LA. And spoiler alert, we definitely can. So this report that came out uh, just last week that really dove deep into what the state of the housing stock is in Los Angeles. And just to highlight a little blip from their report, uh, quote, when developers put up exclusive luxury buildings that rent for more money a month than the residents currently living in a neighborhood make, they are making a speculative bet on what that neighborhood will look like in the future, end quote. So let's just look straight into the numbers on this. So their numbers that they found for the number of vacant housing units in the city of Los Angeles in 2017, according to the Census Bureau, they were pulling 103,000 vacant units, and that is absolutely insane. Uh, they were saying that there were... We, we, should, we should point out that the, there's yes. two different categories of, of vacant units, and we should probably like discuss what they are before we get That's too fine. deep into this. Um, yeah, so we've got, you know, the, the, the main vacancies to deal with here is like uh, rental units that are vacant, which we have very little information on because they're controlled by the landlords and whatnot. And then we have people's secondary or third homes, which are used as either vacation properties or speculative assets or what have you. And 
but but there's also within within the rental unit market there's a certain level of vacancy Correct. to be expected because people move out units get yes. renovated like it's not habitable for a tenant but it's still vacant or the landlord has just finished and just put it on the market and it's taking a minute yeah, to and then, find the that tenant happens all the time and then downtown. there's speculative yeah. vacancies yeah so about so more than half like the majority of units here are regular healthy market vacancy like you need some turnover within a market so people have places to move new pl- new people who come to town have a place to live but then you have these speculative vacancies Correct. and the speculative vacancies are really what sage and ace are trying to to point out and to highlight because those are just units that are being kept off the market until the landlord can command a high enough price and a lot of them also aren't even being listed as yeah. for rent they're really kind of a, a whole shadow market and that's really the pernicious part of this because we've had a hard time as housing organizers getting a handle on how many vacant units there Absolutely. are in downtown you know where a lot of the buildings are like oh we we have the normal amount of vacancies you know everything is most of our units are are filled but if you go into some of these buildings you can tell they're not fully occupied. Oh, yeah. Like you walk through some of these like big parking garages that are ta- that are attached to them, and most of the the parking spaces are empty even mm-hmm. in the evening. Like there's uh, clear signs in downtown that not every housing unit is being used, but the developers don't want to let people know that because A, it makes the units less valuable and B, it gets the city breathing down their neck because they're like, wait, (laughs) why are you holding out for somebody who will pay $4,500 for this unit instead of renting it for a reasonable like $2,500 a month? Uh, And that's really like, that's what we're driving into with with Ace and Sage here, not just like all vacancies are bad and we must shove people into every single So then the breaking down that that 103,000 unit uh, number, they found that 51,825 of these are non-market vacant units in the city that are potentially supporting speculation and excess rather than actually being used for housing people. And uh, more than 10,500 of these are second homes in the city of LA. And there are 41,325, which is the the remainder of that 51,825 number, that are uh, other numbers. So this is a huge number. We're talking almost half of all of the vacant units in the city of LA are being held uh, in this kind of a speculative, non-usable, non-utilitarian perspective of just sitting on them, waiting for either a higher rent or in the case of a lot of uh, the, the kind of speculative asset management that we hear people you know speaking and it's 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 actually it's been a, a like a a thing that has been coming up in housing California housing policy discussions and shall we say arguments rather on Twitter is there's this massive uh, boogeyman that is uh, rumored to be the case of saying oh my god everyone just blames like Chinese investment as this uh, be all like root of all of these problems for the housing market in California and saying people in Vancouver talking about how this speculative investment is just capturing all of the usable uh, housing stock and then driving up the cost of everything as a result and, 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 and taking things off the market. So for a long time, people have been like, well, you say that, but there's no proof. You say that, but there's no proof. But... Well, and also it's a good cutback against the oh, NIMBYs yeah. who are like, no, you can't come to California. We're full. And it's like, well, <laughs> apparently there are 41,000 empty yeah. units. So at least 41,000 more people can move to L.A. comfortably right Absolutely. this Absolutely. But on top of all this, there was actually a November 22nd piece that came out in Bloomberg that was headlined, Los Angeles condo sales plunge as Chinese capital stays at home. So in their reporting, they were showing that the year-on-year condo sales, which is talking about Q3 of 
the current year versus 2018, uh, they were saying that those sales were down by a third. And they continued by saying, quote, Chinese buyers have made about 50% of the purchases in downtown Los Angeles in recent years, said Stephen Kotler, who oversees the Western region for Douglas Elliman, which is an investment, uh, real estate investment firm. Um, but tightened restrictions on capital flowing out of China have hampered the market. So this lack of Chinese capital is particularly impacting the high-end condos that have flooded the downtown market in the recent years. Uh, specifically, they're talking about units that sell for uh, in excess of $800,000. Uh, so, and, and some of those developments aren't even finished. Correct. Like the Metropolis complex is just no. sitting there half finished Otherwise. because the Chinese developers ran out of money and also were like caught trying to pay off Jose Weizar, yeah, that's, that's, who's still in office, by the way, just to footnote that one, like our corrupt <laughs> Jose Weizar still has his job. So you're, you're actually switching uh, Metropolis, which is completed with uh, Ocean Plaza, which is the one that is like Shit, you're right, I keep doing husk. that. They're all ugly I mean, and the same. To be fair, it's entirely reasonable that you would confuse the two because they do, well, during construction, they looked virtually identical. And once they're completed, uh, the, real, the real telltale difference is that Ocean Plaza is gonna be bigger and it's gonna have electric billboards all over the place. So that's the main- Oh yes, joy. It's wonderful when you're driving downtown and suddenly you're blinded by all of this light coming from these ads. Paul Kerkorian is going to love that. So it's fun because like, actually downtown like, seems to be completely immune to all of these billboard restrictions. Uh, so if you drive past or, or walk past or take a bus past, um, the Staples Center and the LA Convention Center area at this point, it's really starting to feel much more like a completely deserted Times Square where there's just like massive billboards shining all of this light upon you and then there's like no one there. So unless you're coming out of like a Kings game or a Lakers game or whatever, like there's nothing going on there. It's just these massive billboards lighting up this empty stretch of Figueroa with massive construction sites ahead of you and nobody living there. Um, so the, the big thing that the, they taught, the uh, Bloomberg article went back to Kotler um, from uh, Douglas Elliman and he said, new building prices are too high for what buyers think is valuable. End quote. So thank you, Mr. Kotler, for your incredibly astute uh, observation of the Los Angeles real estate market. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of wild to see this like all starting to come through. I remember two years ago there was that uh, headline that shocked everybody, where the uh, vacancy rates in downtown LA were like two or three times higher than the rates for the rest of the city. And the main response out of people, especially in like the downtown LA, like Town Square Facebook group, which by the way, do not join because it is extraordinarily toxic and just the worst, uh, well, I mean, it's right on par with all of the rest of like the next door shit that you can see. Um, don't don't yeah. join it, it's bad, it's, it's bad for your health. Um, but they, there was this massive amount of discussion going on relating to this article that had come out in Curbed and a number of other places, citing the fact that there is a, a, a glut of new housing coming onto the market. And they all were just like, no, 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 that's just when the buildings open up, they have these huge vacancy spikes because they're struggling to just bring people in because it's, you know, it's difficult to move people into a three or 400 unit building and have it reach uh, a high occupancy rate within a couple of months, which they were actually doing remarkably well of, of, of filling those buildings up. But the thing is that that really, that tapered off pretty quickly. And now we're seeing things with 
the um, the speculative or not speculative, but the the, the uh, all of this this development that was done with a, a an eye toward a luxury end of the market uh, is really now beginning to struggle because everybody was doing the same thing. And when everybody starts building the same style of condo and uh, apartment offering, they then start competing about who's gonna be able to offer the better amenities and who's gonna be able to offer the, you know, the deeper discounted rents, uh, but without actually changing the rent, just by giving you like a month or two free or by giving you free parking or what have you, but then still being able to justify the, the higher level of, of rents that they're actually listing everything as when it comes down to their sheets uh, of proving profitability for their investors. This market has really just turned upside down on a lot of these developers of they just, they've overbuilt and now they're struggling to find them because who knew there was gonna be a shortage of people in Los Angeles that can afford to spend $4,000 a month on renting out your shitty one bedroom apartment in a building that has elevators that break down all the time because the developer spent all of the money on making it look glitzy and glamorous rather than actually trying to make it with infrastructure that fucking works. So, I mean, it's also one of these weird things where if you're unhoused in the city of LA and you have an animal companion, it's nearly impossible for you to find housing when all these luxury developments at the same time are trying to attract younger people with animals oh, yeah. because they know that they have more disposable income yep. and also they're less likely to have kids and like, you know, that that won't deter other young people without children from moving Correct. into the building because they want to keep that young yes. hip aesthetic. But it's just one of these really ironic turns in our housing market where... If you have money, a dog is beneficial to you finding a place to live. Whereas if you don't have money, it's pretty much you know an an obstacle you cannot overcome. Yep. So uh, housing in LA is weird, and we've allowed for it to become even weirder just because our elected officials choose not to do anything about it. And one thing that is hopeful, looking forward as we move into this uh, this you know coming twenty twenty. Uh, year of uh, hopefully some enhanced discussions on, on these kinds of topics. One of the big things that I'm looking forward to seeing is uh, we, we saw the introduction of a vacancy tax proposal by Mike Bonin and a couple of other folks in LA City Hall uh, that want to look at studying what the root of this issue is. And you know, hopefully they'll be able to build upon the study that was just put out by Ace and Sage and like move forward and determine like the number of units that are actually meaningful vacant in a way that they can then uh, target with a tax. Because it's one thing to go and do the number crunching and predict how many units there are that are vacant or that are uh, otherwise being removed from the housing market by speculative landlords or what have you. But it's another thing entirely to come up with a way to actually structure a law that will then be able to impose a tax. Like when you look at places like Vancouver, they were able to do it mainly because they, you know, they have a socialized healthcare system. So they know like if you live in a place, your permanent residence where you spend six or more months of the year is where your health insurance card is registered. So your national health insurance determines what your primary residence is. Same thing with like where you would be filing your taxes or what have you. Um, and then they were also able to work together with the, uh, the public utilities company to determine whether or not the like, amount of resource consumption within a unit is 
indicative of vacancy or occupancy. And then they're also, you know, that's, that's for just verifying whether or not people are actually living in it. But then a lot of people also active in good faith and people who owned second or third homes were putting them up on the market or were like putting them up on the market to rent or were, you know, contacting realtors and getting, selling them off. Um, but it was really funny hearing the like sob stories of people being like, oh, my third home in this condo in downtown Vancouver, I, I'm going to have to part ways with it because uh, this new crazy tax of 1% of the property's value every year is going to mean that I can no longer afford this you know, $1.5 million condo in downtown Vancouver. And I'm sorry, um, I don't have very many tears to shed for that circumstance. Um, but it did come up with some really fun articles about like uh, students living with like seven or eight students living in a mansion in the, the bit of an outskirts of, of the city of Vancouver because they're just like, wow, these buildings that are owned by speculative, speculative landlords or rather um, not so much speculative landlord, but like, uh, you know, financial regulation dodging oligarchs from China who are trying to move their assets overseas and they don't really give a damn if the if the mansion continues to hold its value. They just want to have that physical asset in another country so that if they have to flee or if their children have to flee, there is hard so there's a hard asset they can convert into cash in the place where they are going to flee to. So they don't care if the market is And for much and for much lower taxes. No. Like that's yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the other thing we want to talk about is like the property taxes yes. they're paying on holding that asset are severely less. Yes. That's why the art market is distended. Yep. That's why the weird kind of like exclusive uh, commodities markets that we see, like when they say, hey, a, a bottle of, you know, old scotch just sold for $3 million. That's just somebody <laughs> hiding their money. That's it's just somebody laundering. saying, like, I want this money. Yeah, exactly. And it's money, yeah. like, being hidden from the tax oh, man. Yeah. Um, it's money that they can easily convert and they can use. And, like, in Europe, they have this, what's called a black money system, where, like, it's just sort of off the books cash that gets shuffled around between rich people. <laughs> and so it's, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in euros that trade hands all the time that is never getting taxes collected on it, that's never getting looked at. But that's the same sort of thing that's going on here in the U.S., um, mainly because we never, we, we don't have that kind of aristocratic um, legacy here, but also because we make it so easy to hide money in assets Absolutely. like that, and we incentivize wealthy people to do yep. that. So it's not a surprise that, you know, we see this wealthy, like, Chinese investment in the same sort of, like, speculative schemes and money laundering schemes that the Trump family made their money. Oh, yeah. Like, Donald Trump is, like, one of the world's largest money launderers. That's that's how he made his money. That's how he continues to make his yep. money. You know, when people are like, oh, my gosh, do you think he's doing crimes? It's like, gee, belly, howdy, I don't know. Is water wet? Like, and the fact that, like, Congress isn't investigating that part of his business and the state of yeah. New York is not investigating that part oh, of his yeah. business isn't because, like, he's particularly good at doing the crime. Oh, it's just that it's such a widespread crime yeah. that they would have to go after every rich person in New York because they're all doing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So, anyway, uh, getting back to the topic at hand, uh, check out the reporting in LAS by Matt Tinoco. He did a great job. 
Uh, shout out to Joe Delgado and everybody from Ace that was involved in this project. Jacob Wucher, all of our friends. You can also find uh, you can also find a copy of the actual white paper from uh, Ace and Sage linked to in the LAS yes. article, uh, which I was going to use the the link that went live on Twitter a few days ago when the article yeah, when the white paper dropped, <laughs> and for some reason that link has gone dead. So we're just going to link you through the LAS, but scroll to the bottom, and you can use a document cloud embed yep. to like read the whole thing. It's really valuable reading, and it's also a really well-written white paper. Yeah. Like, I read a lot of these things, and this is one of the better written white papers in a while. Oh, yeah. Like, it actually kept my attention for all 40 pages, which is saying a lot. Hmm. Um, and it's got a lot of very valuable information and background stuff in there, even outside of just the raw numbers. The raw numbers themselves are incredibly frustrating. Like, we have, you know, 30-some-odd 30 thousand people that are unhoused in L.A. on any given night, according to the point-in-time count, 36,300 right 41, now. 41,000 units that are kept off the market because of speculation alone, like we could house everyone tomorrow. That could, yes, we could. We could do that tomorrow. And if yep. we had some sorts of like rent control and vacancy control, we wouldn't have to worry about people becoming unhoused in the future. They'd be able to move within their city to afford the unit that they're already in, stopping no-cause evictions. It goes a long way to stopping families from being kicked out just because they're not paying enough rent. It's really like, when it comes down to it, the solutions here are super simple and super easy, but it's going to take a sea change in how we look at housing. And, you know, uh, a quote that I keep coming back to from Bill, uh, who's the executive director of Power, is that right now we look at housing as a way for a landlord to collect a rent check. We need to look at housing as shelter for human beings. And until we see that change on a local and national level, we're going to keep having this fight, which is why, you know, Ilhan Omar's uh, housing proposal where she wants to spend a trillion dollars on social housing, the Green New Deal for, for sorry, the Green New Deal for public housing from Bernie and AOC, another step in the right direction for making sure that our current public housing stock is updated and the people who live there have jobs. But we're beginning to see a national conversation around that. And hopefully we can start seeing the Vienna model popping up in more cities around this country. Yes, where, that would make me so happy. Yeah, so exactly. Happy. Where, Owning an apartment building isn't an investment for a private developer. It's an investment for society. It's a way yes. that we take care of each other. Um, and also, you know, let's expropriate the golf courses and turn them all into, yeah. like, 100%. food farms with mixed-income residential facilities. Like, we got, you know, a few simple things that we're going to have to do, and one of those is just ending golf as we know it. Yep. Uh, well, I think that we, we will continue to probably rag on golf courses and the sport of golf as a whole. Um, I think we can make that a weekly recurring segment or at least a once a month thing that we talk about how stupid golf is and how stupid of a land use it is, uh, especially in a city like Los Angeles where we have this, this massive, uh, shortcoming of, uh, massive shortfall rather of actual public green spaces and instead we choose to uh, massively subsidize this incredibly stupid sport that uses an incredible amount of resources for a very, very minimal social good. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that sort of wraps us on this very, like, 
heavy yes. episode on what's been going on with uh, coverage of the housing crisis here in LA, most of which is bad in the mainstream press. Uh, there's a few articles I'm going to link in the description to the episode that are pushbacks against this, including a, a letter to the oh, editor yes. that Steve Ducey got published in the LA yep. Times, which is a really, really well-written uh, letter to the editor. Uh, you know, again, if you're interested in joining Koreatown for All on one of their weekly outreach uh, sessions, you can do that pretty much every weekend. Ev- pretty much um, every Saturday uh, at 3 o'clock, right in front of Emmanuel Presbyterian. We're looking at doing it a little bit earlier for the next couple of months because uh, it's getting dark earlier, and we'd like to make sure that people are, uh, you know, it's, it's as much daylight as possible while we're doing this. So they might start happening at 2. Um, but check out the K-Town for All Twitter uh, to, to keep abreast of what is going on on those uh, outreach sessions. SELA uh, is also another great way to get involved in doing exactly the kind of work that we're talking about here. And of course, you know, join us at Ground Game uh, Thursday nights. We, we, we do the same thing. We, we meet at the same time every Thursday, 7.30 till about 9 o'clock, 5617 Hollywood Boulevard. It's the routine at this point for me to be saying that. Um, this week, actually, we will not be meeting because it is Thanksgiving, um, but we've got a couple of other things going on. As far as I am aware, and uh, until there's further notice, the Black Lives Matter weekly vigil will still be happening on Wednesday from 4 until 6 at 211 West Temple downtown in front of the Hall of Justice. Uh, as it is referred to within the, the people at the vigil, it is the Hall of Injustice because there is no chance of actually finding justice there while Jackie Lacey is in office, and that's what this protest is all about. So come out, shout at Jackie Lacey. It's a good time for everyone. Uh, it's incredibly powerful. It allows for the families of these victims to have the space that they need to grieve and be heard. Uh, it's incredibly powerful, and you will come away uh, feeling better about the shithole that is the criminal justice system within Los Angeles. Uh, there are actually going to be a few LA tenants meetings, uh, LA tenants unions meetings happening uh, this week. I am seeing on their calendar that they've got three local meetings happening on Thanksgiving, and I'm going to go ahead and guess that that's not actually happening. But they do have a Hollywood local happening on Monday, the 25th of November from 7 to 9 at 1760 North Gower. And then on Wednesday, as far as I'm aware, the Northeast local is still meeting from 7 to 9 on November 27th at Avenue 50 Studio. That's 131 North Avenue 50 in Los Angeles 90042. Uh, I'm not going to bother listing the ones that are from Thursday because I don't think that's actually going to happen. Um, yeah, so is there anything else coming up that uh, you want to Yeah, and then uh, keep your eye on December 6th, which is going to be next oh, Friday, yeah. the Friday after Thanksgiving. Another yep. round of nationwide, if not global, climate strikes coming to a city near you. Uh, you can check with sunrisemovement.org. They've got a map up there uh, in coordination yep. with Youth Climate Strike and a couple of other groups. Uh, we're going to be out here in Phoenix uh, throwing down. There are climate strikes across the state of Arizona, all the way from Tucson to Flagstaff staff uh, all across Metro Phoenix. Wherever you are in this country, there's probably a climate strike happening near you. If there's not, mm-hmm. you also can get the resources to plan Go your own. <laughs> and you know what? If that's just you and a few friends showing up at your local city hall and saying, do something about this extinction level event coming our way, that's a great place to start. But so keep Hell your yes. eye on that because it's really like 
we are building towards more mass non-cooperation. We are pushing the envelope with every yes. one of these strikes and showing how people care about yes. the future that we're building. And this is one of those cases where youth really are leading the way. And some of the, the young activists and organizers that I've been working with in Phoenix are so much better at this than I have ever been. And it gives me so much hope for the future <laughs> because when they get through their college education, when they get out into the real world, they are going to do things right. And they're really committed to it. And so... You know, I keep pointing to the 2020 election as like a chance for a big sea change. The the Zoomers are getting ready to vote. Every millennial oh, is yeah. finally like well into their <laughs> 20s and can vote. Like we are yep. the largest voting cohort in this country. If every single millennial gets out there and votes, we can flip Congress. We can flip the Senate. We can put Bernie in the White House. Like we can do all yes. of that stuff along with all of the local down yes. ballot races. There is plenty of time for you to get involved still. Remember, uh, LA's primary is coming up March 3rd, so you can get out there and you can knock doors for Nithya Raman. You can get out there and knock doors for Lorraine Lundquist, both of whom are endorsed by Ground Game. We're keeping our eye on other candidates uh, for local city offices that we're going to be endorsing. There's a lot of stuff that's coming, and it's going to be really exciting. We had some big wins last year with SB21, and this year with uh, AB 1482, where we saw actual progressive legislation getting through and being signed into law and we need to keep that pressure on. We need to let them know that we are more powerful than all of the dark money that PG&E can throw at our corrupt assembly and state senators. We can beat them. We really, really can. But we got to get out there and win this election and then just keep the pressure on. So I hope you all will join us uh, for one of these canvases. If you can't join us uh, because you're not in LA or because like you, you just that's too far to travel, let us know if you're looking for a candidate. We will find people for you. We will also have our voter guide coming out about a month before the election, and we're always interested in people who want to write about their local races. We would love to expand coverage to all of Los Angeles County if we could, but it's, like, really, really big. So if you have knowledge about, like, the city of Bell or any of yeah. the other municipalities like Inglewood that have like their own local elections going on, let us know that you want to write about it, that you've got suggestions for who people should vote for. We want to make this as inclusive and accessible as we can for everyone, but there's you know not that many of us, so we just can't cover everything, but we are totally down for you to help us fill in those gaps. So you know, get organized, stay organized, and we're going to win. Absolutely, and so... As always, if y'all have any events that you want us to be publicizing, uh, taking part in, or generally be, to be made aware of, please send us a message through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at GroundGameLA, at BushidoSquirrel, at Christopher Roth, or on Instagram at GroundGameLA. And of course, like and follow the GroundGameLA Facebook page for all of our live stream content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. And of course, you can read some stories from our comrades and sometimes the two of us dabbling a bit over at Knock.LA. If you'd like to read the sources that we're citing or quoting for yourself, Check out the list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, or wherever it is that you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Uh, thank you very much for your time, for listening to us, and uh, have a wonderful holiday with your friends and family and loved ones. And uh, yeah, if you're going to be participating in anything uh, to do with Black Friday and that ridiculous excess of capitalism... Uh, 
first of all, please don't. But if you do have to participate because of family situations, make sure that you're as patient and understanding of the workers uh, who have to be at those jobs that day, as, as, as patient and understanding as you can possibly be. Because we know that they'd rather be enjoying time away from that work with their loved ones uh, just like you would. So please uh, show some solidarity with them as best you can and uh, stay warm and safe and happy this holiday. And we'll talk to you all again soon. Yeah. Thank you all. Have a lovely week. And don't worry when the new year comes around, we're going to be here to fight. Hell yeah.